You're listening to After the Show, a Signals Everywhere podcast, where we teach you everything you need to know about software-defined radio. In this episode, I'll be going over some of the most common misconceptions and mistakes that new users to SDR tend to run into, in addition to going through some of my favorite new posts from the RTL SDR blog. I'll be your host, Corrosive. I'm an amateur radio operator with my extra class license and the founder of the Signals Everywhere YouTube channel, where I create tutorials, demonstrations, and reviews of software-defined radio topics and projects. Thank you all for joining me. This is, of course, after the show, the Signals Everywhere podcast. And today I want to really help you guys out because I know when I got started with Software Defined Radio, this was when these things were coming in dirt cheap off the uh, Chinese market for five or six bucks a piece. They weren't stable. They didn't really work all that well. And it's really amazing to see how far this technology has come and that we're still seeing very affordable prices. However, I still see a lot of people who are just getting into Software Defined Radio and they're not only having the same problems that I had when I first got started, but they're also having some other problems just because they're new to the hobby or they're new to this arena of uh, radio communications. So I want to try and help you guys out by going through a couple of these issues and how we can resolve them. And we're also going to touch uh, somewhere kind of mixed and mashed in between all this, a couple of posts from the RTLSDR.com blog, uh, just pointing out some really cool and interesting projects that I've seen over the last couple of weeks, and uh, kind of share those with you so that you can uh, get a better idea of all the amazing things that you can do with software-defined radio. So jumping right into the list here, I do want to mention I have a couple of things that my co-host Loki wanted to bring up in this podcast, and unfortunately he wasn't available to record with me today. But he did send over a couple of things that he noticed that have been a major concern for new users uh, coming into the software-defined radio uh, hobby. And so one of the biggest things that he uh, wanted me to bring up, and certainly something I've seen time and time again, is that more gain for your SDR is not necessarily better. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I've seen people, they'll take SDR Sharp, for example, and they'll ram that gain setting all the way up, just trying to increase it as much as they can, thinking they're going to pull in more signals. And what you've probably seen when you go to do that is that your waterfall turns a bright red or a dark red. What you're really doing here is you're overloading the front end of your software-defined radio. And in contrary, you're not pulling in more signal. You're overloading that front end, and you're preventing signals from getting in. I can't tell you how many times I've run into this myself when I first got started. I would increase the gain. I would add a couple of low-noise amplifiers. And I just couldn't understand why was I not able to receive these signals properly. And that's essentially what's happening is you're shoving so much signal into your SDR radio, it has no idea heads or tails what to make of it. And so you run into this scenario where instead of getting a better signal, you have next to nothing. So to remedy this, what I recommend is you start with your gain slide all the way down. Go ahead and tune to a known frequency that you should be able to receive. Because I live in the United States, I tend to use one of the NOAA frequencies. So out here, my VHF NOAA frequency is 162.55. I'll put a link in the show note description here in case you're interested in looking into that further. But once you have a known signal uh, tuned in on your software-defined radio, just slowly turn that gain up until you see that your noise floor is changing. Essentially what you'll have is the baseline of your waterfall and then the peak or the signal that you're tuned to above that. And you want to increase your gain just until you see the noise floor rise with that peak or rise up into that peak. Because once that noise floor begins to rise up with the peak of your signal, you're no longer increasing the signal input 
from that frequency, you're just increasing the noise of everything around it. So if you go just below that level, that should be just where you need to be, and it'll really, really help you bring in those signals that you otherwise weren't able to see because you were overdriving the receive input on your software-defined radio. Now, while we're on the topic of gain on your SDR, something else I want to bring up that I see a lot of new users doing is incorrectly setting their sample rate. And so the sample rate is essentially how much bandwidth that you are pulling in at one time. Now, with these modern software-defined radios, it's really cool, especially for the mid and high tier, that you can pull in 10 megahertz of bandwidth at once or 30 megahertz of bandwidth. But the thing that you have to realize is if you're only looking for a signal that's, say, 12.5 kilohertz wide, and you're looking at a 10 megahertz wide swath of spectrum, that little 12.5 kilohertz signal is going to look so minute that you might not even notice it. Or if you do see it, it might look like a DC spike or any number of other interfering signals. And it just makes it very difficult to find what you're looking for. Typically what I do is if I'm not sure exactly what I'm trying to find, I might use a wider uh, swath of bandwidth. But typically I like to use about 1.4 uh, mega samples per second or 1.4 megahertz of bandwidth roughly. I like to stick in that low range and there's a few reasons for this. First of all, if you're using that lower range, you don't have to worry about say a signal that is interfering maybe a little bit higher uh, overloading the front end quite as much. Uh, that signal might still be present, but it's not into your waterfall so to speak. So I do tend to have that at a lower sampling rate uh, because it just helps me pull those signals in and makes them much easier to see. This way you can zoom in that waterfall and now that 12.5 kilohertz signal is taking up a quarter of your waterfall or an eighth of the waterfall. And it just makes it so much easier to see to the extent that not only can you tell there's a signal there, but you'll soon find that you're able to pick out the different modulation types just by looking at it. You'll see that a FM signal and an AM signal look vastly different on an SDR's waterfall from one another. Likewise, you'll see a digital signal is going to look very different. And as long as you're able to look at this closely enough without too many other things in your way on that waterfall, it becomes inherently easy to tell the difference between all of these different signals and to spot something you may otherwise have missed. Now another point that my co-host wanted to bring up on uh, today's show is the fact that you see all of these software-defined radios available on eBay and it's such a great point to make because I've run into this myself. If you look around for SDRs on eBay, especially the RTL SDR as it's called, uh, a lot of people don't necessarily realize the term RTL SDR was coined out of the fact that these SDRs on the lower end of the uh, price spectrum here are based on a Realtek RTL uh, 2832U chipset. And so they were termed the RTL SDR. But that doesn't mean that every RTL is made the same. If I had to choose, one of my favorite and most recommended is the RTL SDR V3 from the RTL-SDR.com blog run by Carl Lawfer. Uh, he's put a whole lot of work into these. They are uh, very, very high quality and well built, and you're not going to have any problems with them. What I tend to see with the SDRs on eBay is a lot of them are the original DVB-T tuners 
that were using that hacked driver when all of this started, um, you know, with inexpensive software-defined radio. So they don't have a tr- uh, they don't have a temperature-controlled oscillator like the RTL V3 or the new Elec um, software-defined radios. They don't have uh, proper cooling. So what you're going to run into is you'll see that your signals will drift. You might think you're tuned to 155.55 megahertz, but within 10 minutes, maybe you're tuned to 160 megahertz, or maybe you're at 157 megahertz. The uh, oscillator will drift with the uh, change in temperature, and with a TCXO, or a temperature-controlled oscillator, that you'll find in the more high-end RTL-SDRs, such as the one provided on the RTL-SDR blog, is that these do not drift with a change in temperature. And in addition to that, with the better cooling uh, and the cooling pads that they place inside of the housings for these SDRs, you'll find that they are so much more stable. For example, I love to play around with Immersat and Iridium and other satellite bands and modes. Well, Immersat and Iridium happen to be within the L band. So these are at about 1.5 gigahertz in frequency. And while the RTL SDRs uh, chipsets are able to handle this, What you'll find is if you don't have that temperature controlled oscillator and you don't have proper cooling to keep the heat away from those chips, you're not going to be able to tune in that band very well at all. It drifts so badly that it is just completely unusable. Uh, Another thing I see a lot with these eBay style SDRs is you'll find places from China that have taken a cheap Chinese tuner for like five bucks, they've stripped everything off the board, and then they've soldered it directly onto a daughter board that has an up converter for HF, and they try to kind of bring everything in as a single device. But almost everyone I've talked to that have purchased one of those, the solder connections are just terrible. They get the device and it doesn't work. There's a broken solder connection in the USB uh, connector, and you're just not able to use it. And then when you can use it, There's no temperature-controlled oscillator. There's no cooling. There's nothing to keep it from drifting. And what you've really done at that point is you've spent $50 on a $10 piece of gear, and it's going to work like a $10 piece of gear. And so I I can't stress enough to avoid eBay for software-defined radios. And it's a really good point that Loki wanted me to bring up here because I've seen it plague so many users who think they're going to get this running start with software-defined radio, and they end up falling flat on their face because they were sold something that really doesn't live up to the name of what SDR has become these days. So you really want to make sure that you do purchase a quality SDR, and you don't have to break the bank with it. You can spend as little as $30 and get a real solid SDR uh, for your experimentation and for your hobby. Taking a step back for a moment, it is now time to take a quick look at the RTLSDR.com blog and run off a couple of posts here that I thought you guys might find interesting. First one I have for you is a portable RTLSDR-based ADSB receiver with a display in a 3D-printed enclosure. Uh, this was found over on Hackaday.io, but uh, reposted over on the RTLSDR.com blog by a user going by the name of Nathan Matsuda. It's a really interesting device consisting of a Raspberry Pi Zero and an RTLSDR, along with an IP display and a battery pack all thrown together in a 3D printed case so that he can go around and track aircraft in real time with a nice portable device. And while I have seen some apps on the Android store that allow you to do something similar to this, uh, it's just a really nice homebrew solution that honestly is going to provide you with a whole lot more information than a lot of those apps would otherwise. Really cool project and I'll have a link to that in the show notes here. 
The next post I have for you guys here is the SDR Play Spectrum Analyzer software, which was recently updated to version 1.0a. This was written by uh, Steve Andrew, who wrote the software as a way to turn his RSP software-defined radio from SDR Play into a Spectrum Analyzer. If you've ever looked at Spectrum Analyzers, they are an incredibly expensive piece of equipment. You are easily spending thousands of dollars just to get a Spectrum Analyzer, at least of modern um, vintage. And then, in a lot of cases, they're digital and require a whole lot of additional licenses to use them uh, to their fullest potential. This software is really nice if you're looking to tune up a duplexer or a uh, cavity filter for, say, a repeater or some other project. And it's just really cool to see you know, free software like this coming out that allows you to do something with fairly inexpensive hardware that would otherwise cost you several hundred to several thousand dollars. So it's really nice to see this. So coming back to some of the problems and misconceptions I see in the software-defined radio community, especially involving new users to the hobby, is that of antennas. And uh, my co-host Loki wanted me to touch on this, and I really couldn't agree more with him. And an antenna is so amazingly important, and it seems like it's almost always an afterthought, especially with software-defined radio. I think a lot of this comes from the fact that people are just really excited to start using their new SDR. I mean, I understand. Um, almost every SDR that I bought originally came with one of those crappy little magnet mount whip antennas with like a two inch little whip on it. And, you know, to get started, if you have absolutely nothing else, sure, you can use that. It'll pull in something. But the fact of the matter is, is you really have to think about what an antenna is made to do. When you look at your radio, it could be something that cost you $5, or it could be something that cost you $5,000. But if you're not putting anything into that radio, you can't expect good results. And when it comes to an antenna, that's really what it is. It's the conveyor belt of data moving into your radio. And so if you're going to have an antenna, say, on this $5,000 radio, that's basically just a paper clip in the wind, versus a $5 software-defined radio that has a proper disc cone or a 2-meter vertical outside of your home, which one do you think is really going to perform better? Of course, the disc cone or the 2-meter vertical, because those antennas are intended to pull in frequencies of certain bands, and they're built specifically to work with the signals that you're looking to work with. So without a shadow of a doubt, your antenna is very easily the most important part of your setup when it comes to software-defined radio, or frankly, radio communications in any shape or form. However, it's not the only factor. You also have to take consideration about how you feed that antenna. Let's say you went ahead and purchased a discount antenna and you got it outside, but you run it with RG58 coax. Now, that might work okay for something that is local, a signal that's fairly strong, or just something that's fairly low in frequency, you might get away with that. But start looking up into the microwave bands like ADS-B for aircraft tracking, and you're very quickly going to run into a problem. See, if your antenna is not tuned for the frequency that you're looking to receive, you're going to have some loss there. But you also have to take into consideration the feed line or the cable coax that you feed that antenna with. If you're using RG58 and you're trying to receive ADS-B for aircraft tracking, well, aircraft tracking on ADS-B comes down at 1.09 gigahertz. And at that frequency, you're losing almost all of that signal leaking out of your coaxial feed line. 
by the time it reaches your SDR, or any receiver you might be using for that matter, you've already lost most of your signal, so you're only going to hear the things that are super close to you. And on that note, we also have to consider the orientation of our antenna for the signals that we're looking to receive. For example, most people who operate at HF are using a horizontally polarized antenna, which means it's horizontal with the Earth. But if you were to put up a vertical antenna, sure, you could probably receive some of that, but you're going to end up with a lot of loss, and you're not going to be able to receive those signals well. Likewise, uh, on the side of my house here, I have a horizontally polarized V-dipole antenna that I use for receiving weather satellites um, over APT, and it works very well for that. However, there's also a 2-meter amateur radio repeater just a few miles up the road, and while I can hear that crystal clear with my 2-meter whip antenna, I can't hear it at all on the horizontally polarized V-dipole antenna, and it's because that polarization mismatch is causing me a lot of additional loss. So by the time it reaches my uh, receiver, the signal's gone. So on a final note that our co-host Loki wanted me to bring up today, is just the overwhelmingly large amount of people that are getting into the software-defined radio community without any radio background. And it's really not a negative thing. It's, it's amazing to see how many people are finally able to get into radio because this platform has just become so affordable. It wasn't that long ago, maybe five or six years, that you needed to spend well over $1,000, sometimes $5,000, to play around with software-defined radio. And we're now at a point that anybody with $20 or $30 in their pocket can hop on the bandwagon and start doing some really cool things. The problem, however, with the community being so new as a whole is that there's a limited amount of information available on the internet that shows you exactly how to do specific tasks in regards to software-defined radio. And so what we tend to see happening is people come in on Twitter and on Reddit, they'll come in on YouTube or in Discord, and we'll see the same questions asked repeatedly. You know, what kind of antenna should I get? What type of feed line should I use for, you know, this particular frequency over here? And my assumption is they're probably trying to do a bit of due diligence and do some of their own research and they're not getting the answers that they're looking for so they come into you know an online community such as signals everywhere or they'll pop in on reddit and see if somebody else knows the answer and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that however i wanted to provide a little bit of information that might make that research a little bit easier for those who are getting into software defined radio but not really familiar with radio communications um, otherwise. So when we talk about software-defined radio, we need to ask ourselves, what really is software-defined radio? We know it's basically radio that's moved all the hardware components into software for demodulating. So when you strip everything down to it, really, it's still just a radio. And that's how we need to think of things when we're doing our initial research. Let's take ADS-B as an example for aircraft tracking. Let's say you want to put an antenna outside of your house for ADS-B. Well, there's a few things we need to know here. You need to know what kind of antenna you're going to use. And then, of course, that means you also need to know the frequency and the wavelength that you'll be using. So for ADS-B, that's uh, 1.09 gigahertz or 1090 megahertz. So we need to make sure the antenna is properly tuned for that. 
but we also need to know that our coaxial feed line or our cable is made with the proper impedance of 50 ohms and is capable of carrying that signal the distance we want to take it. And so a great place to look for this kind of information is the amateur radio community. And even with something like ADSB or ATCS or all these other digital modes, people have been decoding them in the past with traditional physical hardware radio equipment. So there is information out there. When it comes to coaxial feed line, for example, you can go online through Google and you can look up the spec sheets for RG58 and RG59. You can look up spec sheets for LMR400 and all these different types of coaxial cable and you can figure out exactly how bad is the signal loss at X frequency over 100 feet of distance or however much. And you can give yourself a very good idea of, okay, if I'm going to have a signal in the microwave range and I need to move that 25 feet in this direction, by researching these specification sheets, find out exactly what you need to use for your feed line. You can figure out the exact wavelength for your antenna so you know if you're going to build your own antenna, how long does it have to be? How do you terminate it? And there's just so much information out there. When you look to the amateur radio community and the scanner hobbyist community, what you're going to find is just an amazing wealth of information that talks about how to do grounding, how to build an antenna, what type of feed line should you use for a certain frequency. There's a lot of information out there. And of course, if you still can't find it, absolutely get on Reddit, get on Twitter, get into the Discord server ask us on signals everywhere or ask you know a friend or somebody else that you know there's nothing wrong with that but I just wanted to kind of give you guys a little bit of information as far as where else you might be able to turn so that way you can do your own research and really grow your skill level alright guys well that's all I have for you on this episode of after the show the signals everywhere podcast I hope you found this informative and of course if you have any questions or comments or perhaps you'd like to be a guest on a future episode please be sure to head over to signalseverywhere.com and look for the contact me dialog box near the bottom of the website All right, is everyone gone? Oh, you're still here? Well, good. I'm glad I caught you. I wanted to give you an extra special thanks for sticking around to the end of the episode here and kind of waiting it out for me. Uh, I knew it took a while for this episode to come out, and a lot of things went kind of crazy and haywire in, in my real life, and so it took a while to get this um, kind of out there for you. Um, but we have a lot of exciting things coming up in the very near future. I'm also looking to make the podcast much more uh, concise and streamlined. And we're looking to do this on a much more frequent basis. So hopefully we can start doing one every week. Uh, I don't know if we're going to get quite there. Maybe it'll be every other week. But we're going to make this more consistent. And today you got to hear about Loki, the uh, co-host of the show. And I know we haven't actually heard him on the show yet. Uh, it's been a big thing, kind of coordinating time and scheduling and everything else. But you guys should be hearing from him in our next episode. So we just have to get everything planned out. And hopefully, 
we can start putting out a much more consistent show and start taking information from you guys. So I'm also going to be setting up a phone line. I already have a number reserved where I'm going to be able to have people call into the show and leave questions or comments, and we can throw them on the air live. So a lot of really cool things that I'm planning. I hope you guys enjoyed this. And if you're still listening to me ramble after all of this, do me a favor and go back over to SignalsEverywhere.com. Go to that contact box all the way in the bottom and just let me know that you got to the end here. Let me know what you thought about it. And uh, who knows, maybe I'll have something interesting um, just for helping me out for you. So I thank you again and uh, hope you guys have a great afternoon.